from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. In this episode of Not Thinking Straight, we introduce a new occasional segment, Queer Icons. On this first episode, we look at the life of Eartha Kitt. Until I started researching her life, I didn't realise what a truly tragic upbringing she had. Abandoned by her mother, sexually abused, and being treated very cruelly by the plantation family who fostered her but really treated her as a workhorse. Her strong character led her to be quite a civil libertarian. She was very fond and supportive of her gay fans and in this episode explains why. During the AIDS crisis, she was a rare voice supporting people living with HIV AIDS and fundraising for them. Putting this segment together was an education for me and I hope it's an education for you too. She was an extraordinary woman. Here's a small preview of the segment coming up shortly. When I went to see you the other night, Mm. I was quite struck by the very strong support that you have from the gay community. Mm. Why do you think that was so? I, I wasn't, I wasn't clear. Well, neither do I. But if I was to actually think about it, now that you have put me into this side of my brain, I would think that we are all rejected people. We know what it is to be refused. We know what it is to be oppressed, depressed, and then accused. And I am very much cognizant of that feeling. Nothing in the world is more painful than rejection. I'm a rejected, oppressed person. And so I understand them as best I can, even though I'm a heterosexual. Your sexuality doesn't threaten them. No, neither does their sexuality threaten me. A half-century ago, Studs Terkel interviewed three members of the homophile group Mattachine Midwest. The organisation's president, a student activist and lesbian pulp author, Valerie Taylor. In this week's Making Gay History, we join them for a wide-ranging and laugh-filled conversation about gay liberation, both personal and political. And that begins our second hour. A few years back... I'm from Driftwood, sat down with Joseph, a gay man whose actions led to some very important self-realisations. His stories and many others around bullying finish off our show. Many celebrities have responded positively to being regarded as gay icons, several noting the loyalty of their gay fans. Eartha Kitt and Sher have credited gay fans with keeping them going at times when their careers had faltered. But what is a gay icon? Perhaps it's a public figure who is regarded as a cultural icon of the LGBT plus community. The most widely recognised gay icons are often celebrities who have garnered large LGBT plus fan bases, such as Judy Garland, Dinah Ross, Madonna, Janet Jackson, Cher and Lady Gaga. 
However, the term is also applied to politicians, authors and other historical figures deemed relatable to LGBT plus causes. Prominent entertainers considered to be gay icons often incorporate themes of acceptance, self-love and sexuality in their work. Gay icons of all orientations have acknowledged the role that their gay fans have played in their success. Born Eartha May Keith, Eartha Kitt, lived from 1927 to 2008. She was an American singer, actress, comedian, dancer and activist, known for her highly distinctive singing style in her 1953 recordings of C'est si bon and the Christmas novelty song Santa Baby, both of which reached the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Orson Welles once called her the most exciting woman in the world. Eartha May Keith was born on a cotton plantation near the small town of North in South Carolina. Her mother, Annie May Keith, was of Cherokee and African descent. Though she had little knowledge of her father, it was reported that he was the son of the owner of the farm where she had been born and that Kit was conceived by rape. Kit began her career in 1942. In 1968, her career in the US deteriorated after she made anti-Vietnam War statements at a White House luncheon. Ten years later, after being pretty much banished from entertaining in America, she made a successful return to Broadway in the 1978 original production of the musical Timbuktu, for which she received the first of her two Tony Award nominations. Her second was for the 2000 original production of the musical The Wild Party. Kit was asked by the First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, about the Vietnam War. She replied... You send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed. No wonder the kids rebel and take pot. During a question and answer session, Kit stated, The children of America are not rebelling for no reason. They are not hippies for no reason at all. We don't have what we have on Sunset Boulevard for no reason. They are rebelling against something. There are so many things burning the people of this country, particularly mothers. They feel they are going to raise sons, and I know what it's like, and if you have children of your own, Mrs Johnson, we raise children and send them to war. Her remarks caused Mrs Johnson to burst into tears. It is widely believed that Kit's career in the United States was ended following her comments about the Vietnam War, after which she was branded a sadistic nymphomaniac by the CIA. Following the incident, Kit devoted her energies to performances in Europe and Asia. In 1984, she returned to the music charts with a disco song entitled Where Is My Man, the first certified gold record of her career. Where Is My Man reached the top 40 on the UK single charts, where it peaked at number 36. The song became a standard in discos and dance clubs of the time and made the top 10 of the US Billboard dance charts, where it reached number 7. Thing that I desire 
single was followed by an album, I Love Men, on the Record Shack label. Kit found new audiences in nightclubs across the UK and the United States, including a whole new generation of gay male fans, and she responded by frequently giving benefit performances in support of HIV AIDS organisations.
After I Love Men, her 1989 follow-up hit Cha-Cha Hills featuring Bronsky Beat, which was originally intended to be recorded by Divine, received a positive response from the UK dance clubs, reaching number 32 in the charts in that country. In 1988, Kit replaced Dolores Gray in the West End production of Stephen Sondheim's Follies as Carlotta, receiving standing ovations every night for her rendition of I'm Still Here at the beginning of Act Two. Good times and bum times, I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Plus velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer, but I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes, strummed ukuleles, sung the blues, seen all my dreams disappear, but I'm here. I slept in shanties, guest of the WPA, and I'm here. Danced in my scanties, three bucks a night was the pay, and I'm here. I've stood on red lines with a vest, watch where the headlines did the rest. In the depression was I depressed, no way need. I met a big financier, so I'm here. I've been through Gandhi, Windsor, and Wally's affair. And I'm here. Amos and Andy, Mahjong, and Platinum Hair. And I'm here. I got through A.B.'s, Irish Rose, I lived through Shirley Temple and I'm here. I've gotten through Herbert and Chiaga Hoover. Gee, that was fun and a half when you've been through Herbert and Chiaga Hoover. Anything else is a I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, and I'm here. Reefers and Vino, rescues, religion, and pills, and I'm here. Been called a pinko, commie tool, got through a stinko by my pool. I should have gone to an acting school, that seems a Still someone said she's sincere, so I'm here. Black sable one day, next day, it goes into hock, and I'm here. Top filling Monday, Tuesday, you're touring in stock, and I'm here. First you're another, so I'd bath, then someone's mother. Then you career from career to career. I'm almost through my memoir. I'm here. 
I've gotten through. Hey, lady, aren't you who's it? Wow, what a look are you were. Better yet, sorry, I thought you were who's it? Whatever happened to her? I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Plus, velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've run the gamut, A to C. Three cheers and damn it, c'est la vie. I got through all of last year, and I'm here. Lord knows at least I was there, and I'm here. Look who's here. Ha, ha, I'm still From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. I've heard many interviews with Eartha Kitt, but this one in 1989 on the Terry Wogan show revealed such personal and intimate details of her life that I found it very poignant and worth playing here. You're, you're always perceived as a wicked female, aren't you? You've always encouraged that image. I mean, you, you like that image. I don't really think I really thought of it. I think that when I started to sing songs like that, it was RCA who pushed those particular kind of songs out on the public, so that's how I... Because you, you're not a wicked woman. No, I'm not. But who's going to believe me? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody, now. But you are, I'm reading your book, you know. Um, your name, you've associated with with people like Porfirio Rubirosa, one of the great lovers of all time, yeah. with Orson Welles, yeah. who's not known for being quiet. And, and yet, they never laid a glove on you, did they? No, that's right. I was very young, and they had tremendous respect for a very young girl. Well, that's nice, but it's not that you're... Because, you see, as you say, you seem to be wicked, and you're not a tease, are oh, you? Dear. Yes, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> no, there you are, you see. There you are. You're doing it now. You're doing it. Well, Mr. You see now. Logan, tell you me, see. how wicked do you think? Well, I was just thinking. You're a You've tease. You've never tried it, so I don't no, know I'm... if I'm a tease. I'll be honest, I do think you're a tease. Yes. And you want to know something in all honesty? Yeah. You're one of the few people who accept me teasing them. Why, what happens? I don't know, but they think that you are, I don't know, inhibited or something. No, I'm not. And I never found that. No, I've never found I that. I never found that, Mr. Logan. I never found you to oh, be please. at all. Well. Now I'm waiting for you to open the door after the show. Right. Well, look, thank you all for coming. <laughs> <laughs> There's the two sides of Eartha Kitt, if I, I say, from the book, it seems. Mm. There is, there is the, the very vulnerable, innocent young girl mm. who was abused, as you say, and rejected. Yeah. And then there is the extrovert person. When does one character stop and the other take over? Are you conscious of the two sides of your character? Very often I am, and then sometimes I'm not. And when I catch myself realizing that I have reverted back into being Eartha May, I have this to... This is Eartha May, which is what your name was and when yeah. you were very poor, yeah. and your mother actually 
passed you on to somebody else? Yes, she gave me away to a family that would use, that eventually wound up using me as a, a work mule. And my mother gave me to this family because the man that she wanted to marry said, I don't want that yellow gal in my house. Which meant being an Ill 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 illegitimate child and uh, also the wrong color. You are not wanted by the blacks and the whites couldn't care less. So this black family who had two teenage children used me as a whatever they could use me as a working person. And then I was also uh, by the young gentleman in that family. Are you? Was, how old uh, were you then? I know people don't believe it when I say I don't know how old I am, but I really, I know somewhere I'm uh, way past 60. But how old were you then? Not way past 60, but I'm way past 50. But I was really still about five, six years old. And all that times. abuse going yes. on. Yes. And all of that abuse was going on, and I couldn't tell anybody about it, because who would have believed me? And the young boy, he was not the nicest kid in the world, and neither was his sister. And, the, and there were times when the whole family was gone into the fields or something like that, harvesting, picking cotton or whatever they were doing, and we were left in the house alone. The two teenagers would tie me in what we call a croaker sack. I think you call it what, what potatoes come in. Yeah. They would tie the sack around my waist and then tie me to a tree, and uh, with a peach tree switch, they would beat my bottom until I was bleeding, and I only had one thing to wear, and that was also made of potato sacking. And um, uh, they... Well, I can understand how, well, I mean, something, I've been several years of that, that it's going to mark you for life. Well, you try not to have it leave a scar on you, yeah. emotionally or mentally, but of course, and even though the physical scars are gone, and uh, you start talking about it like we are talking about it now, and you try to not get emotional about it, but all of a sudden those feelings do come back. And the idea of them tying me to a tree, and you're not, you're not able to escape at all. And then you, you had a, an, an auntie, your, your, your mother's sister, who looked after you then in New York. Isn't that right? You went, you went to New York to your mother's sister, Auntie Mamie? Yes, Auntie Mamie. Did she look after you any better? No. My aunt was very, very strict. My aunt was um, a very tall lady. She was about six feet tall and also very fair in complexion. She's half Cherokee, very majestic looking. I was deathly afraid of her even from the sight when I first saw her. I was terribly afraid of her. But she had no children of her own. She was never married. And I think that she brought me up north to New York out of a Christian duty, you know, because she got a letter from the South that told her that if I was not taken away from this family, that they would either starve me to death or beat me to death or work me to death. And therefore, she decided that she would take me on into New York. But she wasn't any better. She was you ran also away abusing me. You ran away from her, too? Yes, but, but <laughs> I think... <laughs> God certainly has his funny ways, you know, because... From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. You're listening to the Gay Icon series on Not Thinking Straight. In this episode, Eartha Kitt. C'est si bon De partir n'importe où Bras dessus, bras dessous En chantant des chansons, c'est si bon de se dire des mots doux, de petits rien dis-tu, mais qui ont dit en langue, en voyant notre mine ravie, les passants dans la rue nous envient. C'est si bon de guetter dans ses yeux une esprame merveilleuse qui donnait la prison. C'est si bon, c'est peu 
petite sensation Ça vaut mieux que million C'est tellement, tellement bon C'est bon, c'est bon Voilà, c'est bon Les passants dans la rue Bras dessus, bras dessus En chantant des chansons Quel esprit merveilleux C'est bon Je cherche un millionnaire Avec des Grands Cadillac cars Minkots Des bijoux Jusqu'au cou, tu sais C'est bon Ces petites sensations Peut-être quelqu'un avec un petit yacht, non Oh, c'est bon C'est bon, c'est bon Vous savez bien que j'attendrai quelqu'un qui pourrait m'apporter beaucoup de loot Ce soir, demain, la semaine prochaine, n'importe quand. C'est bon. Si bon. Il sera très crazy, non? Voilà, c'était God certainly has his funny ways, you know, because I was trying to get away from her, but where do you go? What do you do? I used to uh, stay away from her as much as I could, and I kept running away. And whenever I had a few pennies, I could, the nick, it was a subway, was a nickel, for instance. <laughs> and I used to get on the subway and ride from one end of Manhattan to the other, hoping that the conductor wouldn't see me because they used to have conductors on the subways at the time, and then get off on the other end and get back on. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be... And just keep riding yeah. all night long until daybreak. Running but, away from your life. Well, I don't think I was running away from life. I was running away from rejection. I was running away from not being accepted. Have you... Has that stayed with you? I mean, do you, do you find that... Is that why you think perhaps you're an extrovert, that you're looking for attention, you're looking for affection? But, Mr. Gogan, you know something? I'm not an extrovert. <laughs> I can tease as Eartha Kitt, but as Eartha may forget it. <laughs> I'm hiding under the... Behind the bushes, behind the chairs, behind everything you possibly could, I could possibly find to hide behind. Because I never have been with that kind of security within Eartha May that makes me feel that she will ever be accepted. I don't think Eartha, in myself, in my subconscious. And when I'm writing the book, when I was writing the book, I, I realized that more and more. And that's why maybe sometimes I, I am going around looking like an, uh, the urchin that I really know I am inside of myself and not wearing any makeup and not caring about what I look like. That little ugly duckling has, was always told she's an ugly duckling. Nobody wants you. And she's trying so hard to find somebody that says, Earth mates, all right, you want it too. But nobody's done that yet. Maybe I have not given them a chance to do so, I don't know. But she keeps hoping. But you must, um, there must, people must have shown you affection and love in your life. Is it that you can't accept it? The public and my daughter, yes. The public. Never a, If never, it wasn't never, for never a man. the public, a man, a man has always wanted to lay me down, but he never wanted to pick me up. 
And the men that did have real love and affection for me were the ones that never touched me. It was Orson Welles, Ruby Rosa. And there were a couple of real love, strong love, that men have had for me. Two of them, John Barry Ryan III and Arthur Lowe Jr. But then the mothers step in. And I think very often the mothers, particularly with boys who come from extremely wealthy families and they are the only son, they would rather them marry trash than marry someone of color, no matter how wonderful a person that person of color may be. You've been a, a tremendous survivor in the face of things that most people would not have survived. Where, where do you find happiness? What, I have to find it within myself. Pleasure? And the wonderful feeling that you have when you're standing on that stage and that audience gives you that applause and says, Eartha, it's okay. You're still here and we're glad that you're still here. And when I see the young people, particularly today when everybody knows I'm past 50, whatever the number may be, does not seem to matter to them. When I see the people my age who have grown up with me in this business, they're in the audience and they've brought their children and their children's <laughs> children. Believe me, that makes me feel that I really am a worthwhile person. But then it's something else when I go back to the dressing room, because when I take off the makeup and I'm not Eartha Kid anymore, we say, okay, now, You're Eartha yeah, I'm, I'm Eartha May again. It becomes a testing ground. And I know that. No matter how hard you try not to, it's still there. I'm not afraid of it. And I'm very glad that I can have the feelings from that urchin. And I'm very glad that I have never tried to cover her up. I'm very glad that she's still a part of me. And I'm very glad that she will always be a part of me, because she helps me do what she knows. I have to do out there on that stage because there is where my survival is with that public and with those whom, who know me well enough to realize that Eartha May or Kitty, whomever they want to call me, she's okay. Well, we're very glad that you've revealed so much of yourself and been unafraid to do so. And it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rogan. I went upstairs and I wrote this poem because I wanted to analyze myself to find out what have I done with my life, how have I used the good with the bad and the bad with the good. And I've always said, I have enough, what you call, you know what I mean when I say mailed. <laughs> Thank you. I've had enough mailed thrown on me all my life that I've used it as fertilizer. <laughs> It seems that life's unfair The journey leads nowhere It's roads of miles apart I followed the path Within my heart All that I wanted, more or less Was a key to happiness But now I plainly see to happiness is me When times were dark and days were grey and dreams were lost I found my way through all I've seen and all I've known I'm still standing 
rain through clouds and stormy skies And different worlds all filled with lies I've traveled through the stings of lovers And wiped my tears upon their covers I've lived the life of rogue and queen And dyed my hair to fit the scene I've had my ups I've had my downs And sipped champagne with worldly crowns I've been as honest as I could And shamed the shame of those who should I've been loved And I've been lied to And found few shoulders I could cry to And all those years I thought like naughty She made me beautiful at 40. But life's not been so bad to take. For now, I cut life's golden cake into a million tiny squares. And with each piece, recall the years. The taste of life has not been so bad. Between the tears and joys I've had For with some good And a little sin She always allowed me to get up again And all those years I thought life naughty She made me beautiful When times were dark And days were grey And dreams were lost I found my way Through all I've seen And all I've known I'm still standing Later life, Kit became a vocal advocate for LGBT rights and publicly supported same-sex marriage, which she considered a civil right. She had been quoted as saying, I support gay marriage because we're asking for the same thing. If I have a partner and something happens to me, I want that partner to enjoy the benefits of what we have reaped together. It's a civil rights thing, isn't it? Kit famously appeared at many LGBT fundraisers, including a mega event in Baltimore, Maryland, with George Burns and Jimmy James, Scott Sherman, and an agent at Atlantic Entertainment Group, stated, Eartha Kit is fantastic. She appears at so many LGBT events in support of civil rights. In a 1992 interview with Dr. Anthony Clare, Kit spoke about her gay following, saying, We're all rejected people. We know what it is like to be refused. We know what it is to be oppressed, depressed, and then accused. And I'm very much cognizant of that feeling. Nothing in the world is more painful than rejection. I am rejected, oppressed, so I understand them as best I can, even though I am a heterosexual. Eartha Kitt was among hundreds of artists whose material was destroyed in the 2008 Universal Studios fire. She died of colon cancer on Christmas Day that year. 
three weeks short of her 82nd birthday at her home in Westport, Connecticut. I'm just an old-fashioned girl with an old-fashioned mind Not sophisticated, I'm the sweet and simple kind I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence And an old-fashioned millionaire I'd like a plain, simple car, it's a Reese Cadillac Long enough to put a bowling alley in the back I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned millionaire. I'll stay weaving at my loom, be no trouble to my groom, if you keep the piles of money mountain. In our cottage there will be a soundproof nursery, not to wake my baby while I'm counting. I like the old-fashioned flowers, violets are for me. Have them made in diamonds by the man of Tiffany. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned million. I'm just a pilgrim at heart, oh so pure and genteel. Watch me in Las Vegas when I'm at the spinning wheel. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned millionaire. I'll ask for such simple things when my birthday occurs. Two apartment buildings that are labeled hers and hers. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned millionaire. I like Chopin and Bizet and the songs of yesterday, string quartets and Polynesian carols. But the music that excels is the sound of oil wells as they slurp, slurp, slurp into the barrels. Our little home will be quaint as an old parasol. And instead of carpets, I'll have a money wall to wall. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned million. Studios of Bay FM and Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Recently on Not Thinking Straight, I spoke with the Ironing Maidens. The Ironing Maidens music is around issues around the patriarchy, equality, feminism. This new song which has just been released, is called Breathe Out. The accompanying video to the song can be viewed on YouTube. It's a highly visual video and the production values are quite extraordinary. Here I am 
the Ironing Maidens with a new single, Breathe Out. And if you'd like to follow them, their website is ironingmaidens.com.au. They're also on Facebook and their music is available on all downloading platforms. The Ironing Maidens have toured Europe, playing Germany's famous Fusion Festival, the Performing Arts Festival in Berlin. They've featured at Byron Bay's Falls Festival, Woodford Folk Festival, Jungle Love, Curiosity Festival in Brisbane, Wide Open Spaces Festival and more. They were finalists in the Grant McLennan Fellowship in 2018 and won a John Chataway Innovation Award for their shows at Adelaide Fringe Festival in both 2019 and 2020. They're looking forward shortly to taking off again on tour around Australia and you can probably catch them at your local laundromat where they love to perform. I think I need a Laurie Anderson fix. Here she is with Hiawatha. Geronimo, 
Time for Making Gay History, an American production which documents the history of the LGBTQ legends. A project created by Eric Marcus, who very kindly shares his fantastic work with us here on Not Thinking Straight. By the way, how 
did the word gay come into being? I'm curious. Nobody seems to know, really. It it does seem to be a product of the, quote, gay subculture, though. Uh, I became aware of it when I was first in college around 1949-50, and I I don't know. It's ironic, because the gay subculture has been anything but gay. It's this kind of reverse psychology Mm. when when you're really stomped on, you try and make a joke out of it. Somebody, obviously gay, has suggested (laughs) glum as the heterosexual alternative. (laughs) I was sitting sitting in this glum bar. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. We're back with another interview drawn from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. The archive holds more than 5,000 programs that the pioneering oral historian and broadcast legend recorded for WFMT Radio in Chicago between 1952 and 1997. The history of LGBTQ organizing in Studs' hometown of Chicago goes all the way back to 1924. That's when Henry Gerber, a Bavarian immigrant, founded the Society for Human Rights, the first documented gay rights organization in the U.S. But the police soon swooped in, arrested several members, and the group dissolved. It would be a quarter century before gay people tried to organize again. In 1950, the Mattachine Society was founded in Los Angeles, and in the years that followed, like-minded groups sprung up around the country. Chicago's Mattachine Midwest organization got its start in 1965. One of its founders was Studd's close friend Pearl Hart, a civil rights attorney who became known as the guardian angel of Chicago's gay community for her tireless battle against police harassment. A few months after the Stonewall Uprising, Studd's interviewed three of the organization's members, Valerie Taylor, Jim Bradford, and Henry Wiemhoff. Valerie Taylor was the pen name of Velma Tate, another Mattachine Midwest co-founder. She was a 56-year-old divorced mother of three, and the author of several lesbian pulp novels. She was also Pearl Hart's longtime partner. Jim Bradford was the pseudonym of James Osgood. He was a 37-year-old librarian and then president of Mattachine Midwest. And Henry Wiemhoff was a 23-year-old student at the University of Chicago. Let's join the spirited trio in Stud Studio in an interview first broadcast on February 19, 1970. We're really talking about freedom, aren't we? The quest for freedom and the quest for openness in an open society as to who we are as individuals, physically, politically, socially, sexually. Isn't that what it's about? People of all minority groups, I suppose. Could you, Valerie, would you describe being a lesbian or homosexual, being a member of a minority group? To some extent, I suppose it is. The best estimate I know is that from one-twentieth to one-tenth of the population have have or have had active homosexual experience. It's impossible, really, to get any... Naturally, you're not going to take a census and get honest Mm -hmm. answers on a matter like this. But I think that the male homosexuals feel this much more than women do. Why do you think that is? Society seems to be dreadfully hung up on the sex life of males, at least in this country. I don't know how it is in other places. Uh, Men are not supposed to have affectional friendships, and they're not supposed to stay single, and they're not supposed to share apartments. And it's only now that Henry's generation is coming out with long hair and ruffles on its shirts and so on, and and confessing to an interest in gourmet cooking and so on. (laughs) Uh, A lot of these things, which we believe to be socially conditioned, 
have been regarded mm. until recently as being sexually conditioned. I mean, Jim Bradford, you're over 30. I was thinking as Valerie's <coughs> talking, and Henry, of course, is 23. And apparently Henry's generation, there's a slight gap. And today a generation is no longer 20, 25 years. It's 5, 10 years, you know. <laughs> and you, uh, if you feel Jim, uh, Henry's much freer than you were when you were his age, isn't he? Oh, definitely than I was at that age, yes. I think uh, I have sort of loosened up as I've gotten older and had more experience. I remember the first meeting I went to was Mattachine of New York in 1959, and the cops didn't raid the first meeting or the second meeting, so I decided it would be all right. Now, uh, a year ago, I was out in San Francisco, and uh, several active organizations out there planned a uh, support demonstration in front of the federal building on July 3rd uh, as a gesture of support for the na annual picketing of Independence Hall. It's called a Annual Reminder Day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew the president of SUR, Society for Individual Rights, who said, why don't you come and join us in the podium? Well, I gulped once or twice, but I said, all right, I will. With the net effect that I was televised when a couple of years before I would never have even appeared on radio. So there's a certain liberation that comes with this, this sort of participation. You simply f feel that uh, these things are your own business and helping other people free themselves becomes part of your business mm -hmm. and it's just great to do. So much of, of what gay people are afraid of is the result of an internalization and almost an exaggeration and distortion of what society has told us about ourselves and about our place in society. Um, so much of liberation in that sense uh, comes from just standing up and saying I'm gay and seeing that you know you don't have a heart attack on the spot or you don't mm -hmm. you aren't murdered by someone. Uh, I'm thinking of the phrase power see they have the button mm -hmm. gay power do you think this liberation this openness you think it came about uh, as a in some way related to the black revolution? Oh I think I think clearly if nothing else than a matter of uh, taking one's cues and not necessarily one's ideas but one's cues from from the black black revolution um, I was in Mississippi in 1966 with the Meredith Freedom March and had done quite a bit of civil rights work in Chicago and around. And it gradually became quite clear to me that in a, some sense it was, I don't want to say hypocrisy because I don't think it was hypocrisy, <coughs> but there was, something, there was something wrong when I could work for what I felt right for other people and yet couldn't do the same for myself. And I'm not willing to pretend anymore that I'm any different than I am. I have found that in not pretending and not trying to <coughs> play a game anymore, that I can live a full life and be happy. And there's no reason why other people can't do the same thing. So we come to the question of pretending and it's monogamy, polygamy, homosexuality, heterosexuality, pretending to be that which you are not. Kids yeah. used to be taught about masturbating. Is, are we allowed to discuss masturbation on your program? Well, you've done it. <laughs> 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 that it was a perfectly, parents used to think, you know, it was a perfectly terrible thing and you tied the kid's hands up or something and slapped him and you taught him his brain was going to decay or something. And now I am pleased to find from my daughter-in-law that the baby books tell you all, all little children masturbate and you shouldn't pay any attention to it. People used to have all these terrible guilts, and the whole yeah. thing was based on a misconception. You yeah. see, there is a parallel, I think. So we come back to the question of guilt. Yeah. We come back to the question of who has, uh, who has established this matter of guilt and innocence. I don't really think I've ever felt guilt. I felt anxiety, and perhaps uh, anxiety that wasn't quite proportionate to the consequences of, of my being homosexual. A lot of people do feel a tremendous sense of guilt. And I think the responsibility for that has to be squarely laid on the shoulders of the church. The church has said that if you want to be 
truly religious, you have to be this. And gay people just. You're talking about the church, of course. You mean any church? I mean the church. Religion generally. Religion, uh, (coughs) Christianity specifically, Judeo-Christianity. In your case, Jim. I think probably roughly the same thing has applied to me. I've felt anxious, but not particularly guilt-ridden, and I've always felt, which probably says more for the family I was raised in, my parents, than anything else, that I've always felt that when it came to a showdown that, well, the preacher was wrong, not me. Family. I suppose this question often comes up. Uh, discovery on the part of family. Was that was that problem here? In your case, Henry. Well, of course, homosexuality is something that every family may talk about. Occasionally it comes up in conversations, and I can remember specifically my family was uh, rather skitterish about the subject when it ever came up, snide remarks perhaps, something like that. And I was very, very much taken with the fact that my family, when they, when they were confronted with it, didn't know anything about it, but were very much concerned and wanted to know what it meant, what did it mean to be gay, what was it that they could do to support, support me in that kind of a situation. I think really the problem, in large part, is the problem of ignorance. They think, well, for example, if you've <coughs> ever traveled abroad the first time, you don't know what to expect. You expect everything to be different, and once you sort of get used to it, or maybe by the second trip, you realize that the similarities outweigh the differences. I think that's it with us. People think that we're incapable of love, we're incapable of long-term relationships, we're incapable of holding down a job. My partner and I have been together. We've known each other almost 17 years. We've lived together 15 years, so this proves that it can be done. Uh, when did you first sense, for example, that somebody kept you apart or you were considered different? Well, I don't think that my experience is typical of lesbians because in the first place I have been married. I have three sons slightly older than Henry, so if I act maternal towards (laughs) him, I hope he'll forgive me. Uh, In fact, I have two grandchildren whom I dote on. Also, uh, of course, I have seven published lesbian novels, and this gives me a very good out. I have never been <coughs> picked up in a gay bar, but if I were, you see, I could say I was doing research. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the real question isn't, you know, why are we gay or why are other people straight, but why is it that we're restricted in our, in our abilities to love on an on a emotional and a physical level both? People, as people, uh, regardless of gender, or sex. Um, it seems that society is, is repressive of, of sexual feelings. Well, doesn't a lot of this go back to property and inheritance? In the old <coughs> days, the wife was her husband's property, and he had to be sure that she wasn't laying someone else because the children had to be his. Jim, I'm sorry if that word offends you. I could have said <laughs> worse words. He said land, WFMT. To be sure, well, having (laughs) sexual relations sounds so terribly sterile somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Uh, Because the children were the husband's inheritors of his property, Mm -hmm. and it was a big Mm -hmm. property deal. I wonder if Valerie isn't touching on something very terribly strong. You know, perhaps at this moment, this is a rather critical and exhilarating though traumatic moment in the history of man, isn't it? I, I think we're at a, at a, a, a crisis stage. We're, we're challenging a lot of things that we've inherited that are becoming increasingly irrelevant. And if we're going to survive, we're going to have to deal with these and reformulate these uh, thought systems and structures so that they're truly human. Perhaps we can go back to beginnings, the very nature of our society and these fears of someone who is different. Valerie was saying that uh, authorities <coughs> are not quite as rough with lesbians. Is it perhaps because women themselves are considered uh, less important in society? (coughs) Partly that 
And partly I think uh, women, gay women, are a little better. If they don't wish to say, I'm a lesbian, I'll join Mattachine or I'll join the Daughters of Belitis, it's a little easier for them to conceal their identity. Well, don't you think it has something to do with the <coughs> fact that affection and tenderness expressed between women is something yes. much yeah. more ac yes. accepted in society? It's considered unmasculine for guys to respond toward one another the <coughs> with the same degree of affection and openness of feeling as mm -hmm. women yeah. are expected to. I was just thinking of the dance that we went to at the Eleanor Club. We, this was one of our first radical mm -hmm. actions oh, yeah. at the university. Great. We went as gay uh -huh. people and we decided that this was part of personal as well as social liberation. Mm -hmm. And the girls took to it just like ducks to water. The reaction, however, to us dancing together, that is the males in the group, mm -hmm. was considerably different. This was something that was not accepted. This was something that was not... Uh, isn't this something that I would call the John Wayne syndrome? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, and this is exactly. Isn't this it? It's the fact that masculinity is associated with violence, with anti-affection. Yeah. yeah. This, this sense that uh, in order to be male, in order to uh, be masculine, you have to be able to compete and you have to be able to uh, fight and... and uh, express whatever whatever feelings you feel towards another male in terms of, of, of aggression rather than uh, in terms of uh, affection. And you're listening to another episode of Making Gay History on Not Thinking Straight. We tend, I think all of us tend to feel that people who are very antagonistic to to homosexuals, you know, the guy who wants to beat up on all the queers and so on, are afraid of their own homosexual uh, component, basically. The reaction yeah. to our gay liberation group, we wrote an article in the Maroon, and we've been running ads regularly, and yeah. it's very interesting to see the differentials and in, in responses to it. Um, straight people that, uh, I use this w term straight, that's another subculture term, and a lot you of mean people don't. of course. <laughs> 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 Those people that are, are well adjusted uh, are all for it. They say, you know, yes, we agree, you're an oppressed minority, and why don't you do something about it, you know? Uh, they've been very receptive, even to the point of being willing to wear the buttons that we're making, mm -hmm. say, out of the closets and into the streets. Give me one of those buttons. <laughs> <laughs> We, we are thinking of the group on, on campus at the University of Chicago that perhaps one of the best things gay people can do right now is to form something, buy a house maybe, and I hesitate to use the word a commune, but uh, a, a group living experience in which gay people can prove to themselves that they can function effectively living closely together. I know this was quite an experience to me. I put an ad for gay roommates in the maroon and Shelley called, and Shelley's female, and I hadn't realized that quite, <laughs> you know, consciously <laughs> that females can be homosexual too, and Shelley mm. moved in. And the sense of, of living together and being able to share, you know, our experiences in, in talking during the day, eating dinner together, uh, that sense of loneliness then becomes, becomes something we hold in common and are able to... Uh, uh, do well, away with. What happened when you had that ad in the maroon? Was there any uh, repercussions? Was there any, any repercussions? There were a couple crank calls. I expected them. But mostly I got calls from people on campus that weren't looking for a place to stay, but felt extremely isolated and frustrated and afraid on campus and didn't know how they could uh, meet other people, how, who they could talk to about it. And uh, it was then that I realized that there was a real need for a, a liberation, a, a wider sense than just a personal liberation. I had a letter last week from a young man, 21, who said, in effect, I am a homosexual. I don't know any homosexuals. I'm afraid to go to the bars. How can I meet somebody? He'd read a letter of mine in yeah. a newspaper. 
this kind of hits at the, the whole problem of isolation, a sense of inferiority and guilt that, that, that's been forced on gay people, and, and they don't have to take it. I mean, uh, especially now they're realizing they don't have to take it. But in the past, well, until, I guess, the Kinsey Report had a, a great effect yeah. in, in oh, showing yeah. that there were, you know, there were the, these percentages of people in society, and the sense of, of not being in some sense a freak uh, had a great effect on people. And uh, yeah. more and more we're becoming aware that many of the things that have been accepted as, as normal, quote, normal, mm. have large elements of repression and, and oppression and uh, c uh, can, in fact, be subject to criticism and change. And the more people realize that, the less afraid they are of, of analyzing their own situation in those terms, too. This is interesting. I was listening because in my mind, this is my, correct me if I'm wrong, that the homosexual in the past been regarded as rather conservative mm -hmm. in yeah. nature. Well, they're all points of view on this. Now, my honest feeling is that uh, when we do public speaking, I usually start elaborating the types of jobs homosexuals have held simply to show that you find homosexuals from all, in all backgrounds, religiously speaking, economically, socially, and so on. So it's really impossible to say they're conservative, they're liberal, they're middle of the road. Mm -hmm. I think there may be a slight tendency towards some degree of conservatism simply because of this need to hide mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it, it's gone the opposite way with me. I've been concerned about social justice since I was a kid. And I never got into the homophile movement until I realized, well, here's something that's su suddenly Equally growing up in our area. Yeah. But it was more from the social justice aspect yeah. than from the Me Too aspect. Yeah. Uh, we were considering the possibility of having to picket the police headquarters several months ago because we just couldn't seem to get an answer out of them. That's cleared up in somewhat in the meantime. But at that point, you're talking about entrapment now? You're talking uh, about well, the idea of entrapment? Uh, the specific point was that several bars had been raided, and mm -hmm. we felt it was unjustified, and we were having trouble getting through to headquarters to get an appointment to talk with them. That panned out, so we dropped the threat to pick it. But when we were talking about the, an amazing assortment of people, some of whom had been at the same job for a great number of years and really had an investment in keeping hidden if they were worried, came forward and said, you can count me in if you're going to do it. Really? I'm not the least bit yeah. afraid. It's about time we stood up and started doing things like this. Uh, has there been uh, a lessening, or what has been the attitude toward authorities, specifically police, uh, toward uh, homosexuals, toward lesbians, obviously less? I don't know about police women. I'm not up on that. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of yeah. wonderful yeah. butch police women in this <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, they'll never speak us sorry. again after this. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I would say, and this, I think, is something that uh, the faint of heart should ponder, since we have stood up to the police department and said, look, you're really overstepping your bounds, you're really violating our rights, cut it out or we're going to bring suit against you, we'd rather sit down and discuss it with you, we'd rather see, we'd rather see uh, what areas we can agree on and what your legitimate functions are. Uh, let's do this, but if we can't do it any other way, we'll bring you into court because you really have overstepped your bounds. You've taken our rights away, and we're not going to put up with it one bit more. I think, though, that we hit, when we start talking about the police department, we hit a, a really deeper problem, and that is the police really couldn't be doing a lot of the things they're doing if they, in some sense, didn't have the sanction of society and social attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably fade out on this conversation just as we faded in. We're thinking, Valerie, so any thoughts come to your mind as we're talking now? Uh, main thing, if I could just say three words to the entire heterosexual world or uninformed world, they would be homosexuals are people. We just like everybody else except in the matter of whom we go to bed with and what we do in bed really isn't all that different, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it shouldn't be... And really no one else is concerned. Is yeah, and so yeah. people shouldn't think about us as though we were some different kind of a species. It's a, it's a stereotype, you know, like the racial or ethnic stereotypes. 
and it, it, we're just like everybody else. And you get right down to what the theme of our discussion is freedom and humanity. Thank you very much. Wow, thanks. Thank you, Stead. A few months after the Mattachine Midwest interview was recorded, Chicago hosted the world's very first Pride March on June 27, 1970, one day before New York City held its first march. One of the Chicago March's main organizers was Henry Wiemhoff. Henry later moved to New York and got involved with the National Association of Black and White Men Together, a gay, multiracial, and multicultural organization. He died from AIDS-related complications in 1995. He was 48. Valerie Taylor went on to co-found an annual lesbian writers conference in Chicago and continued to write both fiction and poetry. In early 1975, her partner Pearl Hart fell deathly ill. The hospital's family-only policy kept Valerie from visiting her until it was too late. By then, Pearl was in a terminal coma. Valerie later moved to Tucson, Arizona, where she advocated for elder rights and the environment. She died in 1997 at the age of 84. Jim Osgood died in 2003. He was 71. He and his partner had been together for nearly a half century. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Senior producer Nahani Rouse, co-producer and deputy director Inga Dataya, audio engineer John Gordon, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Denny Olorenko. Thank you as well to Heather Brown for doing some impromptu research for us at Chicago's Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Special thanks to Genoise Berman and our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season 8 of this podcast is produced in association with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, which is managed by WFMT in partnership with the Chicago History Museum. A very special thank you to Allison Shine-Holmes, Director of Media Archives at WTTW Chicago PBS and WFMT Chicago, for giving us access to Studs Terkel's treasure trove of interviews. You can find many of them at studsterkel.wfmt.com. Season 8 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, Proud Chicagoans Barbara Levy Kipper and Erwin and Andrew Press, and our listeners, including Janet Beecham and retired United States Air Force Brigadier General David Cotton. David hopes that in sharing his military rank, others might feel encouraged by his indirect example to realize it's okay to be who you are. Thanks, David. Thanks, Janet. Whether you're new to Making Gay History or a longtime fan, sign up for our newsletter so you're the first to know what we've got coming up. You can do that at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long. Until next time. And a huge thank you, as always, to Eric Marcus from the Making Gay History Project, who brings us these fantastic stories from our past. And now, Elton John and Dua Lipa with their new version, a remix of Cold Heart.
Heart done by you Some things look better, baby Just passing through Studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and across Australia on the Community Radio Network, this is Not Thinking Straight. And this is an episode of I'm from Driftwood. A.K.A. Corinne. And I'm Alex Berg. And you're listening to the I'm I'm from from Driftwood Driftwood Podcast. A few years back, I'm from Driftwood sat down with Joseph, a gay man whose actions as a bully led to some very important self-realizations. Let's listen to his story. I was a freshman in high school and I was very happy because I was lucky enough to be sitting with a bunch of upperclassmen girls. And... There were three of us there, um, me, a friend of mine named Janetta, and a friend of mine named Bridget. And a friend of theirs passed by us, and his name was David. And David was like the out gay guy from our high school. David was was very flamboyant, to put it mildly. Um, David was the kind of guy who would wear Daisy Dukes to school and, you know, like, ultra tight shirts and you know he's one of those kinds of people we used to say back in the day it was in the crystal closet you know you didn't have to ask you could just see right in and that was David and David had come by to talk to Janetta and Bridget and and then he left and as he left I I came up or might have already been there but I said oh my god he's just so disgusting and my friend Janetta looked at me and she said what did you say? And I said, you know, he's so disgusting the way he acts, the way he just prances. It's just, it's just uncalled for. And she looked at me and she said, wow, Joseph, I thought you were better than that. To have somebody who, who I respected, who, who, you know, I'd only known for a short period of time, but had become a, a good friend of mine, to the look of like hurt and disappointment in her face really showed me that this like casual hom- homophobia that that I had been cultivating it's just it's it's not cool it, and it doesn't need to be done and it, and it, you don't need to do that to to have friends or maintain friends and you know that's that's, that's really powerful um you know and and you recognize that having gone through that it just makes you realize that 
you know, oftentimes like some people who are who are the most virulently homophobic are, are just trying to hide something about themselves. You know, even though I was a freshman in high school, I knew I was gay at the time. I had known for quite a bit of time that I was gay. I knew earlier on, you know, when I was in middle school and, and kind of starting to figure out what, what might be my story, that it was always far easier to make fun of like gay kids or gay adults, but always get a good laugh. And, you know, I guess maybe subconsciously, I also thought that people wouldn't think, you know, that maybe I was one of those people too. You know, later on, after I reflected on, you know, what Janetta said to me, I kind of figured out that I don't need to do that. Um, and I promised myself from that day on, I wouldn't make fun of anybody for being gay as a way of trying to hide who I am and, and cover who I really am. You know, if, if you know, you're, you're dealing with those feelings and, and you just have to, you know, accept them and, and, and deal with them and, and making other people miserable um, because you feel that you might become more miserable if, if people knew, um, is really, is really cowardly. And you spread, you, you end up spreading hurt in a way that, that, that people don't deserve and, and that you have no right to impose. So I would hope people would, would kind of, I don't know, maybe use me as a cautionary tale because I think eventually, you know, you, no matter who you are, you'll get it. And, and, and you'll be ashamed. Um, and so the earlier you can kind of change that, the better. When I heard the story, I was really taken by, first of all, I was really happy to hear a story of someone who actually bullied, not the person that was being bullied, but the story of someone who was bullying. Because we often hear about the person being bullied, right? We hear about that often. Very important. But I think it's also important to speak to and hear from people who have done bullying and have who've actually sat with themselves, reflected and understood why they would take part in that sort of behavior. I think one of the most important aspects of this story for me was hearing about how Joseph was working through his own sexual orientation and working through the homophobia he'd been exposed to by doing the same exact thing himself. And to your point, I really appreciate that we got to hear about the evolution of how he learned and changed and grew to realize that what he said was really wrong and that it was coming from this place of fear and alienation as a gay person himself. And I love that idea that as a young person, you have the opportunity to learn, you have the opportunity to change, and you can also repair any harm that you caused as a young person in that way. I feel like that idea is really important. And also it just speaks to that point that so often as LGBTQ people, we really internalize those messages of hatred ourselves and it can just come out in such ugly ways like that. So I just liked it because I think it's really amazing when someone can admit the ways that their behavior was troubling in the past right. and how they learned and did better. And then also for him, how it was really part and parcel with the kind of homophobia that he experienced too. Up next, we have Olivia, a trans woman whose story we filmed in partnership with the Gay Alliance of Genesee Valley. She told us about a cyberbullying experience in high school and how much of a difference just one supportive faculty member made in her life. I did the very unique thing of transitioning from male to female in high school. I, I really came out around my senior year and uh, things actually went pretty well. I mean, I mean it, was, it was turbulent at first, but uh, eventually towards the end of my high school career, I was out at Olivia, changed my name, pronouns, the whole shebang. One of the worst 
periods in that time was actually after I transitioned. I had uh, gotten out of class, started walking home, and uh, got through the door, set my bag on the counter, got a little bite to eat, went up into my room, got on my computer. I wanted to write a quick paper that I'd been procrastinating and uh, ended up doing more of that procrastinating on Facebook. I'd made a, a status about uh, my boyfriend at the time. It was mellow. It was nothing obscene. Just, you know, I was really thankful for him. Well, this kid, who was a grade below me, I never really had a real conversation with, but it was name. He decided to get on his computer. Um, it must have come across this, this, this post that I made and decided to start writing this awful, like, tirade on me. Everything from calling me it and, and a thing to uh, talking about my, my parents and, and how you know, no father could ever be proud of a thing like me. I didn't want it to bring it to anybody. I didn't want to seem like I was weak or hurt. And his friends started doing the same thing. Uh, everything from weird personal messages to uh, like the occasional text or prank phone call. I had friends who were furious. But uh, I felt so, for the first time, like passive. I'd really taken the wind out of my sails. I tried to confront him in the library once. I felt this obligation to, to have a conversation with this kid. I wanted to, to, to tell him that you know, what he did was completely unnecessary, and that if I did anything to, to ever upset him, like I just want to know. He ended up just walking away and brushing me aside. I followed him for a little while, tried to flag him down, like, hey, seriously, I just want to talk. Honestly, I think that scared him. Because, I mean, he, he got out of there quickly, his buddies and all. And I'm sure behind closed doors, they were happy to make more you know, mean remarks and insults. But uh, they weren't going to do it to my face, which is what I would have appreciated. At least have the courtesy to do that. I think the kid ended up getting suspended, but by that point in time, I'd, it didn't matter. Uh, whatever punishment you give a kid like that at that point, I found that... Um, you know, it wasn't going to change his worldview. So th there, was, there was this teacher in, um, in high school. When I first got there, I found that the high school had a GSA, a Gay-Straight Alliance. And this was the first time I really had an opportunity to meet people who were, like, out of the closet and my age. You know, I, I got there the first meeting, and I met the advisor for the club, Mr. Aykroyd. Mr. Aykroyd was the first person I talked to after the cyberbullying incident. And he seemed really upset by the situation because he cares about his students, obviously. Um, Mr. Ackroyd and I just talked. Just, we just talked. We tried to figure out a plan of action. Like, what are we going to do next? What am I going to do next? And he, I don't know. He, he, he took care of me through high school. He had my back. He was one of the only adults I could trust with, you know, my identity and where I was going to be going in the future and, and who I was. If you're going through anything like this, you feel like you're alone, you're not. No matter where you are, there's always going to be a resource. And that even though there might be a lot of negativity that catches your attention, there will always be people who are good and who are kind and who can empathize with your situation. All you need to do is have the courage to reach out to them. 
she basically was navigating a lot of this bullying on her own. And this teacher was the reason why she was able to finally, you know, make sense of it and also not take it on in such a way. And I think that that just kind of leads me to one of the takeaways that I wanted to mention, which is, I feel like this is a kind of metaphor for some other things in life, but you should, people should look for the helpers, look for ways to be supported and find community to help you when you're in a situation like this. Because I think the part of bullying that is really, really tough for people is the isolation, is the feeling alone, is feeling ostracized, feeling outside of a community. That's the part of it that can be really, really damaging, I think. I also just don't know how young people deal with the internet today. I know just like when I was a teen and, and having to deal with in-person reactions and people talking behind your back and picking yeah. up the phone and calling people and that bullying was so intense. So also just hearing her story, it just, it sounds so terrifying and harrowing when now people can take a lot of this really harassing, horrible behavior online. So Definitely finding that helper, finding those adults that you can trust. I feel like that's so important. Were there any other ways that these stories resonated with you personally? I think that we don't think about what happens sometimes to a person. So if I come out as trans and my mm. family is just shutting that down, that's a form of bullying to me as well. You know, I feel like that's not really seen as bullying, but I feel like that's also bullying. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's not something that gets associated with bullying so much. That's such a great point. Well, I'm really excited to continue to dig into this topic even more. So to help us expand on this and the many layers of it all, we have a pleasure of welcoming to I'm From Driftwood radio producer extraordinaire, Nico Whistler. Welcome. Yeah, it's such a thrill. I'm never well, a guest, so it's so fun. <laughs> I know. It's, the tables The tables have turned, you know? What do I do in this <laughs> <laughs> Well, it will be fun. And on that note, I want to jump right in. So for our listeners who are new to you, would you mind telling them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am Nico. I do many things. I do make radio. So I host and produce a podcast for the Heritage Radio Network that's called Clear the Table. And that's kind of my like by night and by day, I teach middle school. I teach sixth grade in Philadelphia. Lots of talking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like it. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the work you do with podcasts. So you produce a lot of podcasts and do a lot of radio work. Is there one piece in particular that's meaningful to you or that you're most proud of? Mm, that's a great question. There are, there are two that stand out. They're different. But this past year, I produced an episode in partnership with a show called Bodies, which I would highly recommend. And I had known for a really long time that I, in making a show about queerness and food, wanted to make an episode about eating disorders and about the trans community specifically. And I knew that making it was going to be really hard because I had an eating disorder for a bunch of years in my early 20s. And so I, yeah, I just like felt really, I didn't really know how to do that kind of storytelling. It's kind of how I feel about being a guest. I'm like, I don't know how to talk about myself. I know how to interview other people. But so I reached out to the host of Bodies, Alison Berenger, because she had done some really just like vulnerable, powerful person, personal storytelling on her show. And so we ended up collaborating to produce this episode called Changing Shape. And I learned so much and I got to kind of, Allison joked that it was like free therapy for me. <laughs> I got to really, yeah, unpack so much. So that I'm really proud of. And then the first episode of Queer the Table that I ever did was... It's called A Footnote Not To Be Forgotten. It's the first episode of the show. 
And it's looking at three riots really, or actions that happened before Stonewall. So in the kind of late 50s to late 60s, all led by queer people, mostly by trans women of color, and all in like late night restaurants or diners that were open in gay neighborhoods kind of after the bars closed or were spaces for younger queer people who couldn't get into the bars to be. And it just felt really special to kind of think about and and to start the show from a framing around like, what does it mean to share space and share meals and just really think about like the power of that, especially I think for queer people who are so often like we're building our own families and food traditions. So those are the two that stick out. I love that it's about food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of my favorite things. Yeah, it's so much my love language. <laughs> From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight. And this is an episode of I Am From Driftwood. On today's show, Phil and I listened to two stories surrounding the topic of bullying, and I'd love to get your take on this subject and the different layers that we explored, especially since you're an educator. Is bullying something you find yourself talking about a lot? Yeah, I do. I find myself talking about it a lot. I find myself, it's different every year. Sixth grade is a funny a funny year to teach where sometimes they come in and they feel a lot older. They feel a lot like mm-hmm. middle schoolers. And in other ways, they still feel really little and really like impressionable and sweet. That's the kind of year that I'm having this year where I have a lot of conversations with my kids around bullying. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that they've been isolated from each other for so long that they like really appreciate each other, but it's not happening. They're so sweet with one another. And at the same time, really like love to dive into topics of... Yeah, both day-to-day bullying and just like big social justice topics. This week, we are doing the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action. And so every day, I'm doing a lesson plan about different guiding principles of the Black Lives Matter movement. And today, we were looking at the principles of queer affirming, trans affirming, and collective value. And they just like, hearing them talk about... (laughs) just the ways in which they want to be allies and accomplices and talking about their own kind of intersecting identities. I right now feel a lot of hope around teaching middle school. And I think some years it, it does come up and it's really hard. And, and it's a lot of what I think was in those stories of just like kids trying to process the trauma that they've received. And so I think we can start talking about, how to deal with that and and kind of interrupt it, the better (laughs) is what I feel like. But it definitely feels like way less than when I was in middle school. Like I don't really hear kids tossing around like that's okay or, but at the same time, some of it is, I hear like coded language and coded homophobia or really trying to get at like, well, where did, what is that coming from with kids? Mm. In one of our stories earlier, we heard about a queer person bullying another queer person. Mm. as a way to cover his own queerness. Have you ever had that firsthand? Have you ever experienced that? That's a great question. I'm trying to like really dig back. If I do, it's repressed, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Understandable. I don't know. I don't think so, but I, I can relate to the like, 
I, I can relate to the Peace and Joseph story around being out with my own queerness. I don't know if I ever bullied anyone or said anything to or about someone, but like really seeing my own internalized homophobia and transphobia come up when I would see someone who was like farther along and being comfortable with themselves or was yeah. just like mm. able to up more space than I was in a moment. I don't know if, I, I mean, it is, I guess, a form of bullying to like really distance myself from someone or kind of try to isolate from someone or not want to associate with them. That's definitely something that I engaged in of just a like, oh, I'm not comfortable enough to be like that queer yet or whatever that was. So when I heard that, that resonated with me of like that protection piece of wanting some space from that. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to the distance piece. I feel like when I was a teenager, I would make pains to be like uh, to be very vocal about liking boys all the time you know just so that I could be like no me like like someone of a, a gender other than male you know like no not me who what you know like I feel like in that way then kind of feeding into these like troubling attitudes almost indirectly in that way so just what you're saying resonates with me a lot. I feel like I also just experienced like garden variety bullying growing up. And I feel like almost everyone experiences, I don't know anyone who hasn't felt bullied or targeted at some point in their life. I mean, especially among LGBTQ plus folks. And then the other story we heard was from a trans teenager who was really viciously cyber bullied. And she talked about that harassment from a particular boy and even attempted to confront that bully to no avail. I mean, did you ever have any experiences like that where you had to deal with a bully who you then tried to confront? Or, I mean, can you even remember those kinds of experiences? I don't know if I ever tried to confront a bully. Like, I feel like I remember being really... The the time that sticks out of being really bullied or like kind of isolated was was middle school, was like sixth grade. And I just didn't, there was so much that I didn't understand a lot of it around my own gender identity. And it wasn't something that was like really articulated to me other than like, I could really tell that people were distancing themselves from me and I didn't know why. Like I felt really on the outs and really left out and just really weird all the time. And I, but I didn't ever try to confront anyone about it. Like I can just remember like people give you, it was a lot of like dirty looks or eye rolls when I would make a comment more than anybody calling me names or saying anything to me. And I don't think that I ever tried to confront people about it. And then when I was older and and when I was like out, I wasn't really bullied, but I just had friendships. And I kind of was like, well, if you don't want to be my friend anymore, because I have a girlfriend then fine. And I, yeah, I sometimes see that that was like, maybe I came out as queer, like my freshman year of college. So that was a couple of years after high school that that happened, like 2009. And I sometimes now like those people are grown up and I see them like posting things in solidarity with queer and trans people. And I, and sometimes it's enough to see that. And other times I wonder like what Mm -hmm. it would be like to have a conversation, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I like didn't have the emotional energy for it then. And I probably don't now, I guess. For real. <laughs> As an educator, I just want to know how involved and aware of cyberbullying are schools, would you say? Hmm. I would say 
schools are aware, but I think not involved. Like it feels, and it feels wild because cyberbullying was happening, you know, 10, 15 years ago when mm-hmm. I was in high school, probably even like when I was in middle school and we were on AIM, for sure it was happening. And it feels like schools really still haven't figured out how to mm-hmm. regulate that yeah. base. I don't know if regulate is the right word. And I certainly don't want to feel like I'm big brother to my kids. But beyond, I don't, I don't think we have great solutions beyond talking about it and trying to make kids aware. There have certainly, I think, been like conversations with kids when, you know, if I've had a student come in and say, this happened on the group chat, and they know like to screenshot it and to talk about it, and then we can have conversations about it. But it, it does still feel like a space that, that, teachers and administrators are really far removed from and where kids are really, really vulnerable and it's changing all of the time. Like there are new platforms all the time. And I don't know, in some ways I think, yeah, like kids find ways to be mean to each other and it's not all that different. And in other ways, kids will acknowledge, like I'll say things online that I wouldn't say in person, Mm -hmm. um, which again is nothing new, but, but yeah, I don't think that we've figured out as schools how to really manage that. And I feel like even with adults and online platforms, I mean, adults are equally as terrible to each other. Adults who know better are are awful to each other. And I feel like this is both such an interesting and fraught time with social media, just because right now I think of young people having access to so much amazing information when you're talking about your podcast and talking about the uprisings that happened before Stonewall. I think like, wow, how incredible would it have been to have access to that mm-hmm. as a young person? And I think just even to Tumblr and to different kinds of identities and be able to have these conversations and find community online. And then the other hand, it also does feel like social media, this this behavior can really go off the rails on social media in terms of bullying. And it is really hard to even track and navigate. And it just, it sounds so challenging, you know, as an educator to have to navigate all this. So I guess one thing I was wondering is, I mean, do you think that bullies grow up and change or do we bully differently as adults? I I think some bullies grow up and change. And I think, yeah, culturally, adults do it all the time. And and I think also kids see that, you know, like kids really. And so it's hard when you're getting messages of, and I think kids are really open to messages of like, be kind and respect one another. and, And then at the same time, like to see adults being really shitty to each other is not setting a great example. So I think, yeah, we, we certainly bully as adults. And I would say, yeah, there are definitely ways in which I prefer hanging out with my sixth graders. Like they're just so refreshingly curious about people and want to do the right thing. And, and I think really see themselves as like the grown up world looks messed up and we would like to build something better. And I think that's true and and real. And I think as much as as educators can do to not shy away from those conversations with them, because I think that's where you get into it or where it feels really punitive if you're only having conversations with kids about bullying in terms of like, you're going to get in trouble if you do this, rather than like, how do you want to feel in community with other people? And yeah, I, I think the ways that kids are really... One thing that I was really struck by was, I don't remember what we were talking about yesterday, but we were having some sort of conversation 
around difference. And they were all like, I feel like the message that I got as a kid was like, don't point out difference. Don't talk about it. It's rude. And they were really able to go to a place of like, yeah, people are different and you should notice it. And tolerance is a bar that's basically underground. And like our job is to celebrate each other. And that just felt so different from what I got growing up. I think your sixth graders have a right. Grownups can be messy. I tell you <laughs> say that. They certainly can. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, and they should know better and they can be messy. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, what would advice would you give to, like, say one of your kids came to you and they were being bullied. Like, what mm-hmm. would you say to one of your sixth graders? I think I would, if I had both of them, like if I had both the kiddo and the bully or they were both in the school or whatever it was, I would really try to talk to them separately first. And then eventually to like, I was wondering in Olivia's story, like what it would have looked like to have someone help her have that conversation. Like what a brave thing to try to confront someone. And I think as a teacher, sometimes my job is to like be an advocate for, for a kid in that conversation. So I think more than what I would say for them, I would ask them, say to them, I would ask them like what they needed and wanted. And if they wanted to have that conversation, I would want to either help them prep for it or, or be there in that conversation as a supportive adult and then figure out from there, but centering it around like, well, what do you need to feel safe in this community again? And I think just also affirming for them of like, it's your right to feel safe. It's your right to feel valued. And like, let's do everything that we can to build that feeling back up. But yeah, I have that hanging. I have like in my classroom, I have a wall of, and I have a bunch of just a list of like, here are things that are always true. And the first one is you deserve to feel safe and welcome here. And so that always feels like we have that. And so we can always start there when stuff happens as it inevitably does. As we begin to wind down, I would love to hear what's coming up next for you, Nico. What else are you working on? I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what I want to be working on. I'm, I, and you all are probably feeling this so much too, but I am feeling really tired by making a podcast on Zoom. And I just want to be like up in people's spaces, especially with something as intimate as food. And so I, I guess what I'm working on is rest. <laughs> I'm resting. That's a, that's a worthy endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. So I'm thinking about like, what will I want to do and what kind of stories will I want to tell when I'm able to kind of be back and share space with people again? Yeah, I love that. I want to be back in spaces with people too. I've almost forgotten what people are like. I, I have no idea. <laughs> like I know what, what everyone looks like in a square, like outside of squares, like, you know, I don't know what that, that is anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure that out. Can you tell people where we can find you online, like social media wise? So you can find me on Instagram at Nico Whistler, which is W-I-S. L-E-R, and there's a link there to Queer the Table's Instagram, which is at Queer the Table. And you can listen to that anywhere that you listen to any podcast or on the Heritage Radio Network. Well, Nico, it was so nice to get to chat with you, both just with your perspective as an educator and also from all of the stories that you've done. So thank you so much for joining us to talk about such an important topic. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so fun. (laughs) 
Live from Driftwood podcast is hosted by Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, and Alex Berg, and is produced by Andy Egan Thorpe. It's recorded as a program of I'm from Driftwood, the LGBTQAI plus story archive. I'm from Driftwood's founder and executive director is Nathan Mansky. Its program director is Damian Middlefeld. I'm from Driftwood is a nonprofit organization, and this podcast was funded in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Additional funding is provided by TD Bank and Heritage of Pride New York. I'm from Driftwood was created to help queer and trans people learn more about their community, help straight people learn more about their neighbors, and help everyone learn more about themselves, all through the power of storytelling. Our score is provided by Elevate Audio. The stories you heard today are available in their entirety, plus thousands more at I'mFromDriftwood.org. You can also follow I'm From Driftwood on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Or subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, y'all. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Let it all hang out But you won't fool The children of the revolution Now you won't fool The children of the revolution Now, now, now In the falling rain Cause it's good for my voice But you won't fool The children of the revolution Now you won't fool The children of the revolution